Joining me is Michael Byers, professor in the Department of Political Science, also Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at UBC. That's the Department of Political Science at UBC. Michael Byers, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be here. Thank you. A lot happening in that court appearance today. What is your take on this? Well, I expect that there's a rather nice chartered jet waiting at YVR right now and that Ms. Meng will be on it within the next couple of hours flying back to China. Um, and that's a good thing because this has been a crisis in Canada-Chinese relations. Um, so after three years, um, it's finally over. What is your take on the fact that it ends or it appears to be ending with this not guilty plea to the wire fraud charges? So why couldn't that have happened two and a half years ago? Well, it couldn't happen two and a half years ago because Joe Biden was not the president of the United States. And Mr. Biden, uh, President Biden, has made a priority out of improving U.S.-China relations, uh, about introducing some new stability into that relationship. And the Meng Wanzhou uh, case is uh, one of the pieces in that puzzle that he has been putting back together. And so with the anticipation then that Meng Wanzhou go, gets on a plane, that a plane is waiting for her, she goes back to China. Does that mean the case then, this is a deferred prosecution agreement, that it's all done, that's it? I believe that uh, that that either Ms. Meng or Huawei will be paying uh, some kind of fine. Uh, Ms. Meng pled not guilty to the major charges, but there'll be details of that agreement that will involve some kind of financial compensation. Both she and Huawei can afford that, of course, uh, so no problem there. Um, but I, I think uh, that this is essentially over. Um, Madame Justice Holmes of the BC Supreme Court um, will later this afternoon decide whether or not to set Ms. Meng free. And she pretty much has to do so because the U.S. is withdrawing the extradition request. Uh, so once that decision is made, Ms. Mong gets on the plane um, and we can all get back at working on that uh, relationship with China. The United States and Canada both have work to do. Uh, China is a superpower. It's a major trading uh, partner. It's also a very difficult country to work with. So there's a lot of diplomacy that has to be done. Everybody, of course, is wondering what the agreement today, what that means as far as the efforts to release Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. What do you think it means for that? Well, I expect that the two Michaels will be released sometime early next year. Uh, they'll be deported um, and uh, China will not uh, admit that they were wrongly detained. Um, but the delay will be because the Chinese regime will want to save face. They have refused to link the situation of Meng Wanzhou with the detention of the two Michaels. Uh, they don't want to admit to any linkage now. So sometime early next year, and of course that, that won't be soon enough because these two men have been held in, in very tough circumstances um, for almost three years, um, and I just hope they're okay. And and so sometime next year, you, you anticipate, or early next year, um, you're you're right though, and and in pointing out that the the Chinese government officials in China have never actually linked the two, but obviously the rest of the world draws the link or makes that link. Um, what about the fact of, of the charges that they face and the fact that it has gone so far in China, even though, again, I think most, if not everybody following along with this, thinks of them as bogus charges. But what about the fact, like you said, of Chinese officials trying to save face when these men have, have these charges and, and what they're accused of? Yes, and, and Michael Spavor has, has been convicted, uh, Michael Korvig not yet. Uh, there may be a, a conviction in that latter case before the deportations. Um, but this has happened before. Um, Canadian and uh, other foreign nationals in China um, have been detained, have been prosecuted, have been convicted, and then deported rather than, than serving their sentence. Um, so I, I expect that's what will happen, um, but it will take a, a few months uh, China will want to save face on this. Um, and, and there's also the larger issue of, of how we um, reestablish uh, working diplomatic relations uh, with China. 
And how, at the same time, do we balance off Chinese power in the future? Um, and I think the answer there is that we need to work much more concertedly with the United States, with Australia, uh, with uh, our European allies. Um, China is becoming more powerful and it's throwing its weight around. Um, but at the same time, uh, we need to talk with them. As Winston Churchill said, it's always better to jaw jaw than it is to war war. Um, China is the new challenge. And, uh, you know, I think our diplomats are up to it, especially now that uh, Meng Wanzhou uh, is on her way home. How do you repair a relationship, though, when two of your citizens and other Canadians as well, we tend not to talk about other Canadians that are being detained in China, but how do you repair a relationship and how do you move on after two of your citizens have been treated this way? Well, we managed a relationship with the Soviet Union for decades. And yes, there were detentions there as well. Um, We avoided a nuclear war with the Soviet Union and eventually that country fell apart. Um, and, uh, and that's a success uh, from a, a Western democratic perspective. We, we managed that relationship, and it took an awful lot of work. Um, and we're now in a, a similar circumstance with China. The, the one better thing about the Chinese situation is that just like we're very economically dependent on China, China is very dependent economically on the Western democracies. So there is an element here of of, of mutual interest in making things work. Do you think in the future there will be a fear of of Canadians to even travel to China based on how all of this has unfolded? I I haven't traveled to China since the two Michaels were arrested, and I have professional um, reasons for traveling to China, so I've chosen not to do so. Um, Will I start traveling to, to China for for conferences um, in the future, probably. But I'm going to wait another six to 12 months to see how things work out. Everyone has to make their own decisions. Um, There is a a risk of arbitrary detention um, in China, just as there is in some other countries. Um, And uh, I will look to Global Affairs Canada for guidance on that because they actually put on their website the risk that they see with respect to travel to different countries. Hmm. Uh, so uh, kind of uh, once ag- again, just before I let you go, reflecting on how this unfolded today, uh, given uh, that we do have a different uh, president, that Joe Biden is the president in the United States, did this unfold then the way you think uh, many were anticipating? Yes, this is how I, I hoped it would work out. Uh, the Biden administration had to find its feet. It had to um, build a, a new relationship with China through lots and lots of meetings. And, and we've now got to, to this stage um, the U.S. would also have been um, concerned not to uh, take any step uh, during the Canadian federal election uh, because China was an issue and the U.S. does not want to be seen to be trying to influence a Canadian election. Uh, and, of course, uh, Madame uh, Justice Holmes was going to, to make uh, her decision to announce her judgment on Meng Wanzhou and the extradition request sometime later this fall. So this was the the opportune moment for a move like this, and uh, I'm just really glad to see it happen. All right. Michael Byers, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the program today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Well, earlier this month, we were speaking with a man named Tyrone Joseph. He joined us on the program to talk specifically about two of his family members who were at the time unvaccinated, and they were both in hospital in critical care fighting COVID-19. One of those family members was his sister, 58-year-old Anna Marie Joseph. She was in a coma. Her son also infected with the virus. At the time, he shared on social media, tweeting out, my sister and her adult son are both in ICU in Vancouver. Sister is in an induced coma on 24-hour dialysis. My 30-year-old son, uh, 30-year-old son can't breathe. They are both unvaxxed. He went on to say, I get it. We First Nations have long been distrustful of government and Western medicine, but, and then he wrote in all caps, please get 
vaccinated. He goes on to say, my 28-year-old son finally just got the first dose. Well, there is a sad update to that story. 58-year-old Anna Marie lost her battle with COVID. Now her son is speaking out, talking about what happened to his mother and how he hopes that by sharing this story, he can help people understand how important it is to get vaccinated. Leighton Joseph joins me on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. For sure. No problem. Uh, we spoke with, with Tyrone and talked about what had happened to your mom, to you. And uh, I'm so sorry to hear the news that your mom has passed away. My condolences to you. Thank you. Um, it's a hard thing to deal with, but, uh, you know, we're getting through it uh, day by day. Can you talk a bit about what happened and kind of walk us through how your mom got sick? Uh, well, first of all... Um, my mother had a very hard life. She was a very strong woman, though, and every time that life would kick her down, she would get back up and she would be trudging forward with just the utmost energy and positivity that you could ever expect for a person in her uh, situation. That being said, uh, she had problems with substance abuse drug of choice, if you will, was uh, alcohol. She, uh, you know, had a lot of problems with um, all sorts of different types of abuse during her life, and uh, which led her to the bottle. Mm -hmm. And because of that, um, a week prior to her going into the hospital with COVID, she had um, been told that she had some liver issues. While they dealt with the problems, um, she got out and things were looking good. Uh, things were coming back to, you know, normal. <clears throat> and then she caught COVID. And that's when it just spiraled out of control. I saw her that Friday. Everything looked okay. She seemed to be in good spirits. She seemed to be you know, doing the thing that she does, which is always loving and caring. <laughs> I went into her house and instantly she was had a plate of food for me. And this is what she does. This is the kind of loving and caring person that she was. She just would feed whoever that she would find anything that she could do to help them through their problems, even with her own. She took the world on her back and would continue to just, walk forward with positivity um, and she brightened up a room no matter where she went excuse me again um, she um, caught COVID and uh, it progressed really quickly um, and she was in the hospital for two weeks suffering with this condition she did have some pre-existing problems like I said, my mom had a hard life. She was stabbed seven times at a bus stop in the chest, um, which resulted in her only having one and a half functioning lungs, which was the co the reason why the why COVID had such an impact on her system. Right. Uh, not only that, obviously, you know, it, it's a terrible disease, but like the reason why nothing got better is because she, she was only working with one and a half lungs instantly just started taking everything. Um, within the first couple of days, I met with the doctor and he looked at me and he gave his most solemn apology that he could to, tell, to inform me that he doesn't think that she's going to come out. And this was only a couple days into the, into the treatment. It's not looking good, Leighton. We're going to urge you right now to start talking with your family about a DNR and funeral arrangements. And I said, no, no, COVID's just a disease, you know, it's not, it's not going to take her. The, my mom's a fighter. My mom has always 
taken these things and just, you know, made it through. It didn't matter what it was. She made it through. You're, you're not giving her a chance. It's only been a couple of days. And he's like, Leighton, the seriousness of your mom's condition is severe. It's not, it's not just going to stop here. It doesn't have one agenda. It takes your body in different ways. And with your mom's kidney and liver issues, um, you know, it's, it's not looking good. Uh, he said, it's, uh, it, it does a number on all of your organs. It, 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 it takes it and it just does whatever it wants. Some days you'll be okay. Other days you'll be not able to move. You'll not be able to breathe properly. You'll not be able to so many different things that it could possibly do. And he's like, the reality is, is we don't know what it's going to be doing to your mother. But from my experience, I'm going to say 99% of the 99% chance that she's not going to make it through this. That just must have been so awful to hear, especially to hear you describe your mom. Like you said, that she was such a fighter. She had survived through being stabbed. She'd survived through so many things. It must have been just so difficult and, and not even believable. That's the thing is I, I didn't believe it. I was like, no, this is just a disease. It's not going to change a thing. My mom's going to come out of this and she's going to be 100%. You don't know. You got to give her a chance. I said, I'm going to give her a fighting chance. I'm going to do everything in my power. And I, I, I did everything that I could possibly think of. And I had family members doing everything that they could possibly think of. And I was there every single day to just speak through a speaker. And that's the reality is I was not able to be at my mom's bedside because of COVID. I was not able to touch my mom's hand. I was not able to just tell her in person that I loved her, which was sorry. It was the hardest thing for me because I'm used to just putting my arms around my mother and telling her everything was going to be all right. I'm used to having that connection with her, having her just be her. And no matter what was going on in my life, you know, she she made it better just by being the loving and caring woman that she was. But because of COVID, I wasn't even able to be there for her in her last, in her final moments. Leighton, what have you learned and want to tell people about this virus? The reality of the disease is that she was stuck behind a glass wall in a room by herself with nothing but uh, the medical staff going in and out of her room um, and us speaking through a speaker to try to say whatever we wanted to say to her. You know, I love you. Good night. Good morning and tell her everything that was going on. And I did that every day. Now, not all of my family members were able to come down and it was only one person allowed into the ICU at, at a time. Family members came as much as they could, but you know, with extenuating circumstances, not being able to see my mother, um, a lot of people, and, so many of my family members being unvaccinated, even her older brother, who had known her for obviously more than I had, you know, I've known her for 34 years of my life. Uh, her brother has known her for 58. So um, he said that he didn't want to go into the hospital. He came down to give us support. And I said, were you able to go to the hospital? He said, I I can't do it. I can't go in that ICU with COVID. I, I can't do it. You know, not having a vaccine, he was afraid of, you know, going to see my mother. And he didn't see her in her last moments. He was going off of whatever information that I was giving him.
And every day I would get calls from different family members asking how she was doing. And I know when we talked to, to your uncle as well, he talked about really getting that message out and, and using this experience and, and this as, as a way to try and get that message about the importance of, of vaccinations and getting immunized against COVID. What do you say to people who will continue to kind of downplay the importance of this disease when it has taken the life of someone like your mother, like uh, somebody who was a fighter who, who you never thought would be taken out by this? Well, that's the thing, really, is like my brother, uh, he was the same way. He said, no, no, I don't I don't need the vaccine. He's typically a healthy guy. He uh, rides his bike every day. He works in construction. He works hard and he's working every day. He's he's a typically super healthy guy. Um, And uh, he had caught the disease and he went through six days of absolute excruciating hell. Um, And after this whole thing happened, he looked at me and he said, nope, I'm getting the vaccine. As soon as possible, I'm getting the vaccine. This is no joke. This is not something that you should play with. And for those people that, you know, have extenuating circumstances, uh, as my mom did, it's more important for them it's absolutely important for them to get the vaccine. When you don't have the vaccine, you live a lonely, lonely life. You you can't go out. You can't go see friends. Well, you shouldn't because you expose yourself to the risk of going through the the hell that my mother did in her last moments. She wasn't able to be there with family. She wasn't able to have the touch and the connection that you need in those moments to be able to heal, if not, you know, just to be able to be comforted. She was, she was in a glass room. She was in a class case and it wasn't fair, but this is the reality of the disease. Most of my family members from hearing this story have reconsidered their position on the anti-vax movement they they realize what it is and they they've seen what it can do and i've i've talked to them personally and you know i would say the same thing to other people that i said to them don't play around because it won't and it doesn't discriminate if you catch it and it's so very contagious there's so many different communities that have being that are being devastated right now uh, because of this. Go get yourself safe. Go get yourself a way of, you know, having a fighting chance. Because while at the ICU, I was talking to the ICU doctors, and he said that he had plenty of people that were coming in there um, sick with the with the disease. He said to me. You know, we're letting these people out and they seem to be fine after, you know, a really hard battle fought with COVID. And we think that the worst is over and we let them go home. And within a couple of days, they're not alive anymore. And he said, this is the reality. This is what's going on right now. And I've talked to even friends of mine. Uh, I have a friend who is in Abbotsford who uh, is an anti-vaxxer. And I said, listen, man, I care about you and I care about your family. You must reconsider your position on taking this vaccine because it doesn't just affect you. It affects your whole family. Your whole family is affected by this. And I consider myself to be a part of your family and I really really would hate to have this happen to even my worst enemy, anybody. It doesn't matter. Nobody deserves this.
Leighton, I want to thank you so much. We're, we're almost out of time, but I want to thank you so much for joining us, uh, for talking about this. I know it's not easy to talk about this so soon after losing a loved one, losing somebody who was clearly so important to you. But as you know, it is such an important message to get out there as well. So thank you so much for joining us today and talking more about this. Thank you for having me. So we have been talking a lot about cruise ships, that industry, whether or not it's coming back to Canadian ports. So we've been talking about travel changes when it comes to what is going to be required if you are flying into certain or to certain countries. So we thought it would be a good idea to check in and see how things are going in Point Roberts. So joining us once again is Brian Calder, president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Thank you for... uh Checking up on us. <laughs> well, we like <laughs> we to do like that. We feel like the Maytag repairman <laughs> stuck out here and locked up, and they've thrown away the key, I think. Yeah, oh, that's a that's a good analogy, a good way of putting it. But we do like to check in from time to time when there seem to be developments, even if they are slight developments on the case. We've now heard from a U.S. Senator, Patty Murray, making the case, saying that something needs to be done kind of standing up for Point Roberts. So what's your reaction to that? Oh, bless her heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the video uh, of her yesterday. It's about five minutes she was allowed in the Senate, and she stood up, and I think the first time in history Point Roberts has ever been mentioned in the Senate. But she's been supporting us now for four or five months, saying open, and she's written to the president and said, open Point Roberts yesterday is the way she put it. And she said it's safe. Uh, we're vaccinated 85%. About, I think that's about the same as Delta. So if you lifted the border and removed it, uh, we're both in the same boat. I mean, 85% of us are vaccinated. We test every week here at the fire station, uh, twice a week now, actually, because we're allowed to go in to Canada from Point Roberts, but Canadians aren't allowed yet to come down and check their homes here um, or occupy their homes or visit their homes, whatever. Um, and that's ludicrous. It, it's, to me, it's a human rights abuse now. It, it's quick complaining about Cuba and human rights abuse. Look at your own Point Roberts, Mr. President. Yeah, and how are things going? I know I, I ask you this, it seems, every time we chat, but the morale of the people who have been there and have been living there this whole time. Well, it, it's, it's traumatic. It, it, the part that really irritates me is it's unnecessary. Um, and so why are you doing it? And it's because, I think, uh, we're run in the United States by a military mentality of uh, homeland security. And they go, one size fits all, you will comply, click your heels together and salute us. We're the boss and you're nothing and and they're not known for their humanitarian considerations. And the president is elected by the people, not Homeland Security. And so the president should step in and say, look, I, take a look at it. I mean, no one's even looked at it. Every, every political person in Washington state supports a controlled opening of Point Roberts border specifically. It's, there's no better place for a test case, surrounded three sides by water and one little station up there that you have to go through to get in here. You can fly in. I mean, it's, it's nuts. You can, I've, I've seen people here that have come in here, Canadians who own property here, fly out of Vancouver in the big, the big jet into Seattle, the seven of them, so they, they went to Seattle instead of Bellingham, chartered a, a plane there, so then now they've gone through two airports and in a, confined in a plane with all the other people sweating and coughing and fly back into Point Roberts, and that's allowed. But the same people, so they spent something like 3000 bucks, and the same people can't get in their car and spend 30 bucks in gas to come down here locked in their car and isolated to go to their home. It's, it's madness. 
It doesn't make a lot of sense. I remember when this pandemic first started, I remember talking to a man who lives in Tawasin but keeps his boat in Point Roberts, and he did something similar. He flew to Bellingham, I believe, and then drove or made his way to Point Roberts and then brought his boat home and kind of begged for forgiveness when he went to, through customs to explain what happened. But we thought it was bizarre, and, and what a bizarre story at the time. But yeah. to, clearly there have been other stories like that as well. It's Continuing. Well, he probably removed his boat because he wasn't able to use it uh, for that summer. And again, we've lost a second summer. But he, along with 600 others, have removed their boats from Point Roberts. We're now down to about 180 vessels in a marina that holds 850. Hmm. So that's dramatic. I mean, it, it's and it's unnecessary. It's, un, it's not accomplishing any. If it was protecting us, I, I'd be right at the head of that list at my age. And sensibility, um, I, I got vaccinated in February. I was right at the head of the line. Couldn't wait. So it's not as if we're some kind of uh, right-wing reactionaries that are anti-everything. We're progressive and we're responsible. And we're saying to the government, you should be too Quit looking at Cuba and China for human rights and look at Point Roberts. Uh, Senator Marie spoke uh, when she talked earlier. She spoke uh, and a quote from her. She said, I greatly appreciate the administration's science-based approach to the COVID-19 pandemic. She went on to say, though, but I firmly believe that the evidence supports at least a narrow and tailored exception to the Canadian border closure to allow for a reopening of the Point Roberts port of entry to Canadian travel. And then she says, I have yet to be presented with a compelling reason why a border exemption for Point Roberts has not yet been provided. I mean, she makes an excellent point. My, my fear is, and I'm guessing yours as well, she, that nobody has responded to it, or, or it's not as though somebody can give her or provide her a compelling reason. Exactly. And, and we put that to her six months ago. The fire chief and I um, put a plan together for a controlled opening on a test basis, test pilot sort of basis, that we would have a van, a medical van, with a portable test unit in it. Abbott Labs makes one for about $15,000 and gives you results in five minutes. And we would pay for it, and we would put it at the border. Private industry would pay for it. We raised $50,000 to do it. And so the theory would be, or the proposal would be, we'd have the van with paramedics staffing it, including the fire chief is a paramedic as well, and we would have it at the border and say on a trial basis we'd go four hours a day, We'd advertise it and tell the Canadians that you could come down during this time, have to have proof of vaccination. We would also give you a test in five minutes at the border, which is not a long time at our lineup. We, 2018-19, we had 1.5 million people go through this little border here. 1.5 million. So far this year, we've had 50,000. But we would test them. They'd come in. And they could mingle freely, just as we do at Delta. I mean, if you take that line away, we're both 49th parallel. We're the same people. We're the same level of vaccination. Um, you, you wouldn't know the difference, except for that line they drew called the 49th parallel. So where do you, I know I ask this all the time of you as well, but what do you do at this point? So you now have, so the update being Senator Murray making the case, but nothing has changed at this point. What do you do? That's, a, that's the million dollar question, and it's a million dollar loss to our businesses here in the process too. I, I, we're searching, we're trying everything we can. We've got, like I said, every political leader in the state of Washington is telling Joe Biden, take a look at it. Get out of the darkness, come out into the light, and debate, even debate with us. I don't mind being proven wrong, but you better be prepared to argue and make a case because I'm going to argue back, And but you're arguing in a vacuum. I mean, it's outrageous. I pay more attention to Cuba than they do to Point Roberts. Uh, are you at least, or I, I know earlier in the month there was some emergency funding uh, that was to help the marketplace at uh, the grocery store there. Has that helped out at least and helped the store stay open? Well, the, uh, it's helped in the, it's in the sense that she isn't losing as much. 
she she was losing thirty thousand out of her own pocket every month for eighteen months. Try that on. I mean, and and she has said, Allie Hayden that owns it, the owner of the marketplace. Thank heaven she stayed open at her cost, um, but it shouldn't be at her cost. What she said is, I want the Canadians back. I don't want your government money. I mean, you'll take it, of course, if that's the last resort, but I don't want it. I want the Canadians here. I'm in business. I want to have my own cash register ringing with customers and serve my customers. I don't want your government backing a big truck up and dumping $100 bills out the back of it into my empty parking lot. Right. And so losing 30000 a month, is that simply, or not simply, but is that because of that would be the lost business that there would normally, especially in the summer months, be so many people there? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Normally she'd be, we'd, we'd get 5,000 people uh, in here a day, uh, you know, and, and now we're getting none. I mean, that, that's the dynamic. And do that for six months and never mind 18 months. Um, it, it's dramatic. I mean, gas stations are closed. Uh, you can get there with a card lock, but no staffing. And uh, I just talked to Nick Kaniski on the weekend from the reef, and he's talking about he's going to close. He said he can't, can't keep it open. It's just not making any economic sense at all, mm-hmm. costing him money to serve his clients. I know you, you put out a, a, a cartoon, although, I mean, making fun, but obviously a, a serious situation, a cartoon of a, a, a small airplane when we yep. learned about the changes to some of the, the flying rules. I'm guessing that there isn't a way. Uh, it made me think uh, of airports that were close by or if you could have a float plane flying between the two. I, I'm guessing there's not a way to do that. Uh, no. I mean, I mean, like I said, you could, and, and people are, uh, doing the flight out of Abbotsford into Bellingham and then replaying and come into here. Right. Uh, but I'm thinking that my next cartoon will be me and a cannon being blown <laughs> over the border. Um, um, I'm, I'm, we'll try anything. Humor, we'll try holding our breath, we'll try <laughs> yelling and screaming. <laughs> uh, it, it just, it's so damn frustrating and un- unnecessary. Why... Why do they look for trouble? Why do they cause trouble? There's enough problems in the world today without the politicians making more problems for us. All right. Well, Brian, I know this is not the last time we will talk to you about this, but thanks again for joining us and uh, hoping for some news, some changes in the near future. Thank you very much, Jill. Uh, Point Roberts appreciates your coverage always. We started the show talking about the major update in the Meng Wanzhou case. We're going to talk a bit more about that now. Richard Curland, who is an immigration lawyer and policy analyst, is joining us. Richard, thanks so much for being here. A pleasure. Big day, (laughs) to say the least. So were you listening to the court proceedings, or can you tell us a bit more about what happened this morning? I'm in court, and uh, this morning, uh, the deal is uh, the court process in New York, in Brooklyn, uh, received agreement for a deferred prosecution. Uh, What this means is uh, Ms. Mung has to admit to some wrongdoing and the information she passed along to an international bank uh, and uh, pleads not guilty to all charges. The balance reached was to let go of the charges as they concern Ms. Meng. Uh, the admission of wrongdoing is highly relevant to the continuing prosecution of Huawei in the United States. However, uh, based on this deferred prosecution agreement, the Americans decided to basically cut her loose. Uh, she's allowed free on bail. Uh, to travel where she wishes. Uh, The uh, United States uh, 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 government, uh, Department of Justice authorities, uh, agreed to notify our justice minister here in Canada uh, that extradition will no longer be required. The request is being withdrawn, and uh, right now, in in about 20 minutes, uh, it all uh, picks up in the Vancouver courtroom, where the judge will hear what happened uh, hours ago in uh, the American court, uh, the results, and the likely outcome uh, that's expected is uh, freedom from Ms. Meng, uh, a trip to China apparently scheduled hours from now, 
uh, and concomitantly, uh, the release of our two Michaels. While not part of the overall package, uh, China dropped a hint subtly, uh, the same way you drop a brick off a 10-story building, that uh, one of the Michaels who was sentenced to 11 years uh, was subject to immediate deportation. And so immediate deportation means now that Ms. Meng's case appears to have wrapped up, uh, there's an excellent chance that at least one Michael will be uh, headed back to Canada very soon. Hmm. All right. There's a lot happening here. Uh, let's. Uh, I want to go back to the not guilty plea because when the the rustlings all started, that we knew something was happening today. There were a lot of uh, rumors going around that it was going to be a guilty plea, a fine paid, and that was going to lead to Meng Wanzhou's freedom. So, wh- when you talk about the not guilty plea, mm. how does that work? Yeah, <laughs> devils in the details. Uh, I look at the practical difference. Uh, words are words, but what happens to the body? Uh, so uh, you, you, are ad- uh, you are admitting you did something wrong, but you're not admitting guilt. And here's, here's the deal set up. On the one hand, uh, you can press guilty or not guilty and go through a multi-year process to figure out uh, the answer to that. On the other hand, you can say, all right, look, I admit I did something wrong, and I'm going to pay a penalty of some type, uh, let's end this now. Uh, everyone meets in the middle. And uh, that is in the interest not just of Ms. Meng. It may be in the interest of Huawei. Time will tell. It certainly is in the interest of our two Michaels. It's certainly in the interest of reducing global tensions between the United States and China. It is certainly in the interest of all Canadians, because now China can turn the tap back on on trade and uh, will bring in Canadian goods and services, particularly from our agricultural sector. Uh, And so when you're dealing at that geopolitical level, removing the thorn from the lion's paw goes a long way to finding solutions to the other problems that that are plaguing us during this uh, COVID economic uh, rough patch. Uh, so is it a formality, you think, when court gets underway, like you said, in about 20 minutes, mm. it's going to start up again. Is it a formality that the judge is told the United States is going to withdraw the extradition case mm. and a formality to stamp whatever the judge stamps to let Meng Wanzhou go? Not with our system and certainly not with this uh, court. Uh, nothing should be taken for granted. Uh, and uh, folks are on tinterhooks. Uh, I've just watched the entire legal team uh, for the Meng defense walk by me. Uh, They are now heading into the courtroom. Uh, They do seem pleased today, Uh, and uh, the hope is that uh, finally uh, this case uh, ends uh, in Canada for all concerned. Um, I don't think this should ever have started in the first place, uh, the the uh, in court turns out the Americans didn't tell the whole story to Canada to get this case going and left out some important details and got some important details plain wrong. Uh, so uh, at the end there is an end, uh, and uh, it's just in everyone's best interest. Kudos to President Biden who undid what President Trump started using Ms. Mung as a trade pawn in his negotiations. No help at all. Uh, that uh, Ms. Meng is an international, high-profile, successful female business person. President Trump uh, never took fondly to that profile. And uh, with the assistance of um, uh, the Prime Minister's office, the Government of Canada, uh, President Biden was uh, engaging in arm-twisting. At the heart of the lion's den was HSBC, the international bank that over a few years have paid billions of dollars in fines and penalties for violating, you name the law, banking laws, money laundering laws, what have you. And the, the, the killer stroke was uh, May 24th, 2021, when HSBC announced it is ceasing banking operations on U.S. soil. America won. They got these people out, and as you recall, if you're a Netflix watcher, uh, this is the bank that is the banker to the Mexican drug cartel. So uh, the brilliant legal strategy on the part of the bank was to ensnare Ms. Meng and Huawei uh, and bought themselves multi-year 
continued operations in the United States for their bank because the thing would be uh, uh, held up in court because of all the issues. So the bank is gone. Ms. Mung is free to go from the United States in a matter of um, minutes, perhaps, or at least a couple hours. Uh, she may be uh, free to uh, snip her ankle bracelet <laughs> and head on her private jet back to China. And I know you have to run to go to the hearing, but I just want to quickly touch. You mentioned the Michaels. We talked to a political science professor earlier. His thoughts were that China will hang on to both the Michaels for a few months because they've never actually made the connection and they need to do that to save face. Well, here's the thing. With so much goodwill uh, floating over the Pacific Ocean right now, I look at this and crudely, with apologies in advance, as almost a commercial retail transaction. You get 50% when you sign the contract, one Michael goes. You get 50% when you deliver, which is Ms. Meng on Chinese soil. Uh, Beijing loses no face at all with a prompt release of at least one Michael. And I expect that to happen uh, in short shrift. Uh, With fingers crossed next week, I am wishing. All right. I think a lot of people are with you on that one. Richard, thank you so much. Such a busy day, but thanks for making some time for us. And can't, can't wait to hear what happens this afternoon. <laughs> Me too. Okay, take care. You too. That is Richard Curland, immigration lawyer and policy analyst, and we will keep you up to date. So that case is going to resume in court in downtown Vancouver at two o'clock. All right. On a much, much lighter note, it is a very busy news day today. So we want to take a few minutes to look at something that looks like on the surface, it could actually be beneficial for a lot of pet owners. And we know there are a lot of pet owners in this province, in this city. So many, I'm sure, will be happy to know that a new app is now going to be expanding into the Vancouver market. And it's called Pause on Route. That is P-A-W-S on Route, E-N-R-O-U-T-E. And we are going to check in with the owner and founder of this. It's a company that's been up and running in Toronto since 2017. Dacio Roller is the owner and founder. And she's joining us now to talk more about what this means for Vancouver pet owners. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on the show today. I'm very excited to talk about Pod on Route and our expansion in Vancouver. Well, it's pretty exciting, and we know Vancouver, there are a lot of furry family members and even more added during the pandemic. You have expanded into Vancouver, so what exactly does your company do? Well, we are a full-service pet transportation and logistics company. We provide technology and, um, sorry, we combine technology and a soft human touch uh, when providing pet transportation. Our motto is any pet, anytime, any place. We, uh, we provide long hauls, short hauls when it comes to ground transportation, and we also help book flights for pet owners. So, so is it something like a, a rideshare service, but uh, where pets and animals are, are welcome? It is like a ride-sharing company, but I would say we're more than a ride-sharing company. We have drivers that are experienced, pet experienced, And every pet that comes into our vehicles are treated like part of the family because they're fellow pet owners and pet parents that are providing the service. Pets also can travel on their own or with their pet parents. And uh, we, when it comes to air travel, we take the pets through the whole process of checking them in, making sure that they get on the flight. The same with when it comes to vet appointments, we will take a pet to a vet appointment and we would wait there for the pet and then bring them home. And again, like I said, it's with or without the pet parent. And anybody who has uh, tried to uh, get a ride with their pet knows that it can be difficult. If you don't have a, a private vehicle, it can be difficult. You're, you're not allowed to take pets other than service animals on transit in Vancouver. Uh, how did you come up with the idea? Well, I came up with the idea because I had a personal need. I had a very sick pet who needed to get from one emergency clinic to the next. And when I asked for transportation, I was told that there was no such transportation for pets. 
And so for me, I didn't want any other pet parent to ever be without transportation for their fur kids. And and how many drivers then? I know you're just launching this into Vancouver, uh, based out of Toronto. How many drivers do you anticipate there will be, or how many will you need to service the Vancouver area? Well, we are right now, um, we have recruited just about a dozen drivers, and we have about a dozen drivers on standby. So we want to see how the business does in the market, um, in the Vancouver market. And uh, we'll use the model that we have in Toronto to quickly expedite and bring more drivers on. Have you had a lot of interest so far? I know it's still pretty new uh, in the Vancouver area, but have you had people showing interest? Yes, definitely. Um, we, we put an ad out and we had quite a number of people respond. There are a lot of people who love pets and, uh, and want to drive uh, for a company like ours. That's what we're learning very, very quickly. So there, there has been no real issue in, in finding drivers. Uh, that's great because it is, uh, like you said, you came about this uh, from a very personal story of, of needing an emergency ride, but it can be difficult if you want to go somewhere in a city like Vancouver and you want to take your pet with you and again, that you don't have your own car. Um, you, you kind of answered this, but I think it's interesting to talk about when pets are alone. So are there any rules as far as if somebody, say, <clears throat> say is calling for a ride to, to take a dog from one house and they're going to another house, um, what's the process in that in that do you have to make sure that the the person at the other end is there already or how do you make sure that it's kind of a seamless transfer well we have to make sure that somebody is on the other end uh to to um actually be there for the pet when the pet gets there so we go through a a pretty stringent planning process um with uh the pet owner whether it's it's through our app or booking it on, online or you can call and, and, and book a ride. Um, we have a, a 1-866 number. For us, it's, it's important to have that human touch because you need to be able to make the arrangements that you just talked about in terms of making sure that there's someone on the other end. So, And that's another reason why we are different. And you asked a question at the beginning from a ride-sharing service. We have to have that, that human touch. Um, we also have safety harnesses, so crash-tested safety harnesses in, in each of our cars. All right, that's that would be reassuring, uh, I know, for the, the pet owners as well. What about the pets themselves? Are there any rules as far as vaccinations for pets or that you have to make sure that, that your pet is comfortable and is going to be okay, especially if you're sending the pet without uh, their human? Yeah, no, definitely. So we want to make sure that, first of all, that they're friendly pets. Um, so we do get a lot of information on the pet when, uh, when, when booking. So we have to make sure of that for the safety of the pet and uh, the safety of, uh, of the driver. Uh, the the crash, test, uh, crash test safety harnesses are also, um, you know, how we protect uh, the pets in um, when, when they come into our vehicles, because, of course, we have to make sure that, and it's our drivers, we make sure that they have uh, a spotless uh, driving record, but we also have to watch out for the other folks that are driving um, out there. So so safety for us is, is really, really key. And so those harnesses um, make sure that there is safety um, and, that's, and that it is a priority for us when when taking the pets in, in any of our vehicles. All right. Uh, you mentioned uh, that there's uh, it's the Pause on Route ride app. There's also the number people can call. Uh, did you have to go through any of the regulatory hoops that other, uh, say, taxi services and other transportation services go through, or is it different because you're dealing with animals? It's different because we're dealing with animals. Um, you know, there aren't those same requirements as yet. Um, there may be in the future. And as a company, we're constantly making sure that we are on top of any type of requirements. But then again, we put our own requirements in place, like the safety harnesses, um, because safety, again, is, is key for us. 
Right. Uh, you mentioned, too, that you help uh, getting people, getting pets on airplanes and doing the paperwork. And I've flown with my dog a few times, so I know that it can be a little a little daunting when you get to the airport and do that. Um, so, so do you, do the drivers help the, the pet owners when they're flying with their pets, or are they also able to send a pet on its own? They are able to send their the, the pet um, on their own. And for us, we do the paperwork. Uh, we we also um, do the ground transportation. So we will take the pet and um, the pet parent because sometimes they're tra- traveling on the same flight and we would dra- drop the pet parent to their passenger terminal and then we would take the pet to their terminal, make sure that there's a washroom break prior to going into the terminal for the pet and then what we do is we, we take the pet through that security um, process that and screening process that we go through as humans. We have airlines like WestJet that are our partners, and so they have cargo facilities where we're allowed access, and that's how we help pet owners and pet parents. Um, you know, through that, it's, there's a lot of anxiety when your pet has to travel, and and we're there to make sure that the process is smooth and seamless, and we do the pickup on the other end as well. So once the the pet is off the flight, we make sure that we provide that washroom break before putting them into the vehicle to to take them to their final destination. All right. And and what are the costs like as far as how do how do people pay or how is it how does it, um how do you kind of formulate how much people pay for the trips? Well, you mentioned earlier that um, that we're like a ride-sharing taxi service. So it's it's based on kilometers. It's based on time, so time of the day that, that you're traveling. So all these factors make up um, what the price would be for ground transportation. And, um, you know, it can range from somewhere from $25 to $60, depending on time of day, of course, and number of kilometers. All right. Well, it's a, a very exciting uh, expansion uh, to see this in the Vancouver area now. Dacia, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Jill, thank you for having me on this show. I appreciate that very much. It is the last Friday in September. Yes, it is that. We are going to talk books, and that means Marianne Yazedjian, the manager at Book Warehouse, is joining us once again. So great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much, Jill. Lots of great reads, and fall, I find, is is a great time. Summer is, is great as well. I'm using that word a lot for reading because people have time off from work, and there tends to be a bit more time. But something about wrapping yourself up in a blanket, getting all cozy if it's raining out, there's something about reading in fall that just seems to work. Very much so. And fall is a great book season as well. So many fantastic books come out in September and October. And then, you know, we have the Writers' Fest again coming up in October. So there's just so much to read right now. Let's start then. It's a book called Ring by Andre Alexis. What is this all about? Yes. Now, this is the book that I was most anticipating, actually, for the last two years. Um, So did you read 15 Dogs? I started reading it, but honestly, when bad things were happening to dogs, I couldn't finish it. I also, I found it very difficult to read, but I also could not put it down. I actually read 15 Dogs in one long sitting because I loved it so much. So this book, Ring, is the last book in a five-book arc that Andre Alexis has written. Each book is quite different, but they all relate. So it's not not like a chronological, you know, series of books, but they all relate to each other. So this is the last one. It's a literary romance, but it is so much more. It's about magic, faith, race, love, and his writing is just so engaging and beautiful. I can't say enough about him. I highly recommend all of his novels. Mm, Interesting. And that was the thing about 15 Dogs, and and I get that there was a whole lot more going on in that book, but the writing was beautiful. I just, yeah, I, I stopped and I meant to pick it back up, but I, I just couldn't do it. So maybe this one would be a better fit. Yes, or honestly pick up any of the other three as well. They're all so fantastic. All right, that is Ring by Andre Alexis. Let's move on to the book of Form and Emptiness. 
This is so fantastic. I've only just started it, but I've been waiting for this book for ages. So this is Ruth Ozeki's new novel. And you might remember her from A Tale for the Time Being, which came out a few years ago, which, again, everybody picked that book up as well. But this is her new one that's just come out. It uh, takes place uh, one year after the death of the father of a 13-year-old boy, Benny. And he starts to hear voices, but they belong to inanimate objects. So like a sneaker or a piece of lettuce or something in his house. He can't understand what the voices are saying, but he can feel what the objects are feeling. And they start to follow him. The voices start to follow him out of the house. So he seeks refuge in the public library. He meets his own book, which then the book begins to narrate Benny's life. It is captivating. I, I've, like I said, I've just started the book and I cannot wait to get home to keep reading it. That uh, sounds fascinating. It also makes me question or often wonder a bit in awe on how authors come up with their ideas and, and come up with their stories. I know. It's so creative. And I love what I love most about Rizzozeki is that she puts elements of magic realism into her book. So you're you're suddenly just confronted by something just so beautiful and magical. It's It's fascinating. All right, that is the book of Form and, en- and Emptiness by Ruth yes. Ozeki. Douglas Copeland has a new book out. Yes, it's his first book in, I, I want to say, almost 10 years, I think. Um, this one is called Binge. I-, I was a bit hesitant because I'm not a big fan of short fiction, but this is a book of microfictions that are all related. It is actually fantastic. It's a bit high concept, but it's completely readable. Every story is insightful, funny, sometimes you're a bit uncomfortable, but everything is very profound and unique. Is, is micro-fictions, is that a new phrase for short stories? It is, but very <laughs> short stories. Very so short. So we're talking like two, maybe three pages maximum. Hmm, interesting. You know, that I think might be appealing, though, also for on the other side of it, if you're, if you're looking at this huge novel and think, oh, that's too much to yeah. take on right now, you could just read a couple of the, the micros. Exactly, very much so. And that was my idea with this, thinking that, you know, where our brains are these days, we can just handle little bits of information at a time. So I started it that way. And there's a reason he called this book Binge, is because you cannot put it down. You Mm. just want to keep reading. Yeah, six. I'm looking at it now. 60 short stories. That's a lot of short stories. It is. But like I said, they're very short. And then once you start to get to a point where they're all starting to get connected, it's it's so good. I think, and there clearly is a thirst out there for Douglas Copeland's work. I just... Speaking of micro, I just happened to put my copy of Microsurfs in a local book library, one of the, oh, the nice. free libraries in my neighborhood, and it was gone the next day. That's a great book as well. Yep. All right. That is a new one by Douglas Copeland. Snow Country. What is this all about? Yes. Now, I haven't read this one, but my colleague Trish, who manages our Semi-Amu store, highly recommends this one. So this is the new novel by Sebastian Fox. And what Trish says is that he has done it again with this beautiful novel. It sweeps across Europe as it recovers from one war and awaits the coming of another. She calls it an epic love story told in elegant prose. And this is actually the second book in a planned trilogy. The first book was called Human Traces, and it actually came out in 2005, so you know, 16 years ago. But you do not have to read them in order. You can jump right in with Snow Country if you want. Right, because I have trouble read, uh, remembering things I, I read last year, let alone yeah. remembering something I read in 2005. Exactly, yes. So no, if you just want... It, folks is fantastic, it, like excellent historical fiction. All right, Snow Country, and let's move on to The Husbands, plural. Mm-hmm. So this is one that my colleague Sam at our Broadway store recommends, The Husbands by Chandler Baker. She calls it a light contemporary read. It's about a lawyer who wonders why having it all comes with such a price and why her husband doesn't seem to be paying quite as much as her in their day-to-day lives. And she meets a group of women living in a neighborhood where their roles are reversed, the men's and the women roles, and of course everything is not as it appears. Uh, Sam calls this a reverse Stepford Wives, and she says it's very entertaining. It sounds like also uh, something that you would get sucked right into. Yes, like it seems like uh, you started on Friday night, you're done by Sunday, kind of read. <laughs> All right, that one is The Husbands, Big Panda, and Tiny Dragon. It's you, you have to see this book to understand how beautiful it is. Um, this is a recommendation from my colleague Sherry, who manages our Maple Ridge store. And I don't know if you saw the book The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse that came out a couple of years ago. Beautiful illustrations, uh, short statements, just very inspirational and philosophical. And this is what we're comparing this book to. We all just fell in love with uh, Big Panda and Tiny Dragon the moment we saw it. 
It's a feel-good book. You can read it cover to cover, or you can just pick any page and enjoy the message on each page. And like I said, you really have to see it to understand how beautiful it is. I, I just pulled up some of the images of it, and I'm probably not supposed to make this comparison, but there, there are a couple in there that really remind me of Winnie the Pooh. Yes, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, so what age group would this book be uh, targeted to? I mean, adults. Right. But of course, you know, any, any age could read it just to appreciate the illustrations and the simple messages. But it's, it would be the perfect gift book for somebody who just needs, a, you know, something inspirational and meaningful to flip through. It is. Uh, just looking at some of the pictures, beautiful, beautiful work. So that is Big Panda and Tiny Dragon. Let's move on. We've got two more to get to. What is The Unidentified? The Unidentified by Colin Dickey. So this is a recommendation from my colleague Anissa at our Broadway store. She always picks the most interesting nonfiction books to read, and she makes me want to read all of them. So this one, The Identified, she calls it a history of pseudoscientific thinking. It covers UFOs, cryptids, government conspiracies, lost continents, and tracks the development of all of those subcultures and how they've played into the 20th century as a whole. She says it's very cool and informative and also quite disturbing. Mm, I, I like that. Was it the, um, the subtitle is Our Obsession with the Unexplained. And I think, I think everybody has a certain level of interest in things that for whatever reason can't be explained. Oh, definitely. I mean, I love finding out about conspiracy theories and fascinating things like that. All right. The Unidentified. Also sounds like a very good employee if she makes you want to read everything that exactly. she suggests. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's look at one more. Mary Roach has written a, a book called Fuzz. Yes, and so this is also Anissa's pick. And again, now I want to pick this one up and read it. Um, so people might be familiar with Mary Roach. She's written quite a few books. They're all one-word titles for the most part. There was one called Stiff that was about cadavers. There was one called Bonk that was about sex. So this new one, Fuzz, this one covers human and wildlife interactions and how people deal with things like bears in dumpsters, elephants grazing farmland, rat infestations. But it's told with her usual curiosity and her wry sense of humor. So she makes uh, these things just fascinating to read about. And I think this would be a great one for Vancouverites to read these days as we're you know, hearing about coyotes in Stanley mm. Park and bears all over the place. I, I thought the exact same thing just there as you were describing that, given what's been happening uh, in Stanley Park with the coyotes and other wildlife encounters that does seem very timely. Yes. All right. That one is called Fuzz by Mary Roach. I think that's it. Are we through the list? We're through the list, yeah. But um, there's definitely a couple more that I can just toss out some author names just to let you know, because there are so many great books, like I said, that have come out this fall. There's a new book by Leanne Moriarty, who uh, she has written so many great books, but she's, one of her books recently is on uh, Nine Perfect Strangers. It's on a new Netflix or Crave or something show that is Amazon. great. Amazon, Amazon show. Okay. Um, I try not to say that, but okay. Oh, all right. Sorry. Um, no. <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, so she's got a new novel out that looks fantastic. Guy Vanderhaeg and Wayne Johnston, both, you know, epic writers. They both have new books out. John Banville has a new book out. So there's just so much to read. I encourage everybody to pop into one of our stores and get recommendations. All right. Sounds great. Marianne, we'll leave it there and we will talk to you next month. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.